Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to First Baptist here in Rocky Top, Tennessee. We're glad that you're with us this morning and glad that you're listening. We're going to continue our look at a church reborn and what it means to be just a church in its purest form, a New Testament church committed to the kingdom of God and that which God has asked us to do. It's interesting to me that, to think that at one point in the not-too-distant past, the church did not exist. There were no steeples that stood high in towns with crosses at the top. There were no small groups meeting in homes to study the Bible. There were no missionaries in distant lands who were taking the time to translate scripture into native languages. There was a temple in Jerusalem, and there were synagogues scattered about in limited numbers, but there were no churches. And to some people, God's presence seemed exclusive just to the Jewish people. But then God did something extraordinary. In Galatians 4, Paul tells us this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you were sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Adoption. We have been adopted into the family of God. We are sons and daughters of God. God has sent us the Holy Spirit, and as a result of this graceful and merciful act, we can call God our Father, or as Paul puts it here, Abba, Father. It's interesting, and I think this is important to understand as we move forward, discussing this expression from Paul in Galatians is very peripheral to what we're going to be looking at from the book of Acts today, but it's endearing in our relationship to God. And the word Abba is an Aramaic word, and it really doesn't have a English, an English equivalent, a literal English equivalent. It's used very few times in the New Testament, but it's a word that shows deep adulation and respect towards one's father. Now, I'm going to give you my opinion real quick, even though no one asked for it. Some commentators say that this word means daddy or papa. And as a result of this position, when they pray, they will say things like daddy God or papa God. Now, I think that these are the same people that probably eat expensive avocado toast of a morning and drink nothing but Pellegrino sparkling water. And I will say, while there is some merit to the interpretation that this word, particularly in its modern usage, would mean daddy, I believe we lose some of the reverence and awe by using that interpretation here. Paul in Galatians was conveying the unfathomable truth that God now meets us in an intimate way. Our creator, the God of the universe who flung galaxies into existence by his word, now reveals himself to us in a way as close as a loving, nurturing, and kind father. So when we address him, we have the same thoughts of the psalmist that wrote in Psalm 47, The Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. Now, it's not a hill I would die on. I'm just giving you my opinion about that word and the usage of that word. But why bring up this idea of adoption and the endearing and intimate relationship we now have with God? Well, in part, it helps us understand the early Christians their own relationship to God, the growth of the church, and the vision of the church is God's plan for all people, not just the Jews. You see, the early Christians had a keen sense of identity. God was their father. It was a deep and loving and personal relationship. 
And the church grew out of an understanding that God had empowered believers by the Holy Spirit to share the gospel. And this included the Gentiles. If you were not a Jew and you belonged to some other ethnic group, you were a Gentile. And it seemed that they had long been excluded from the promises of God, but now they had been grafted in. They were included in these great blessings and redemptive story that God had planned from the very beginning. And so today I'm going to start a series from the book of Acts. I'm not sure how long we will camp out in Acts just yet. It's a very expansive book, but it's so powerful to understand the role and power of the church as God's redeeming messengers in the world. It's a unique book in that it has all these stories that have been selected from early church history. So we're going to start at the very beginning, Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So looking at the book of Acts, I think that as we understand this, it'll be so crucial as we take our journey through it. Luke is the author of the book of Acts. Now, Luke was also the author of the gospel that shares his name. So just as God had inspired Luke to write his gospel, recording in beautiful detail key biographical events in the life of Jesus, so now Luke provides a follow-up, a sequel, that details the events of the early church. Luke is my favorite biblical author. I love his attention to detail, his penchant for historical context, and the clear, methodical way he moves through the story of Jesus. And again, the book of Acts is the sequel to Luke's gospel. In fact, at one time, both Luke and Acts were together as a two-volume set. It's also interesting that Luke was a physician. He was a medical doctor. And by the time Luke would have lived, the medical practices would have greatly been advanced. And even today, modern medicine owes much credit to the Greeks. But to back up just a little bit, before Luke's day, here in the New Testament times, medicine was based on a lot of superstition and just wild conjecture. Greek mythology was closely linked with medical treatment. And one of the most common ways to treat sickness was a healing ritual known as incubation. So these people seeking treatment would come to the pagan temples that were scattered all throughout the known world at the time, and they would be directed by a priest to sleep in a special room called an abaton. These were dorm-like rooms within the temple. And the Greeks believed that as the people 
slept in these special rooms that they would be visited in their dreams by the Greek gods. And the next morning, the dreams would be reported to the priests, and the priests would prescribe a cure based on the dream. And these cures were largely psychological, oftentimes based off the use of charms or incantations or something like that. But occasionally, they had some meaningful things like hydrotherapy or redirecting one's diet or helping them out with their environment and their environmental practices. But again, by the time that Luke would have practiced medicine, there would have been a huge shift in the quality of health care thanks to a well-known Greek man by the name of Hippocrates. Now, he, even today, is known as the father of modern medicine, and he developed an understanding of the inner workings of the human body, truly doing what we would call science nowadays. And he looked at the cause and effect relationship between behavior, the environment, and the nutrition that affected a person's health. He sought to get to know the patient, to have an understanding of them, and most importantly, to do no harm. And so if you know someone in the medical profession, or if you have served in the medical profession today, you know that all of these medical people take something called the Hippocratic Oath. And Luke would have attended some medical school, though we don't know which one. The Greek medical centers were in Pergamum, Tarsus, Athens, Laodicea, and others. The point being here, Luke was the real deal. He was smart, he was well-trained, and he wrote masterful historical records under God's inspiration. And lastly, Luke was also the, non, the only non-Jewish writer of the New Testament. He was a Greek. He was a Gentile. And so the purpose of Acts is that Luke addresses both of his gospel and the book of Acts to a man named Theophilus. Now, the exact identity of this person is unknown, but Luke addresses him in Luke 1.3 as most excellent, which was a common way to address someone of high regard and esteem. And in the opening statements of Luke's gospel, he gives us the purpose of writing these volumes. He says, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write, a mo to write an orderly account for you, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And I love that last statement, that you, he was writing to Theophilus, that you may have certainty. There was a deep conviction behind Luke's words. This was the truth. This was real, and it was life-changing. And while we know little about Theophilus, it's important to note that his name means God-lover. So by extension, Luke was writing to all people who would love God. Now, if we didn't have the book of Acts, the Gospels would end and we would jump straight into the letters of the Apostle Paul. We would have no background information on the Apostle Paul. We wouldn't know about the first missionary journeys of the early church. We wouldn't know about the growth of the early church. We wouldn't know about the persecution and martyrdom that some of the first believer, believers experienced, and we wouldn't have a lot of detailed historical references. Luke is crucial to understanding the ancient world in all walks of life and all walks of study when looking at antiquity. And so we see how the church started in Jerusalem and it expanded outward. The historian Boise makes this interesting comment. He said, humanly speaking, Christianity had nothing going for it. It had no money, no proven leaders, no technological tools for propagating the gospel, and it faced enormous obstacles. It was utterly new. It taught truths that were incredible to the unregenerate world, and it was the subject of most of the most intense hatreds and persecutions. 
So we see the church here in its purest forms. We see the basics of the church, the fundamentals, the pure church in its infancy. And I think we need to get back to that. There's a famous story that occurred in July 1961. The very famous coach, Vince Lombardi, was kicking off his first day of training camp for his Green Bay Packers football team. And I don't know how many of you remember 1960 and 1961 football, but the previous season had seen a heartbreaking loss to the Philadelphia Eagles after blowing a lead in the fourth quarter of the NFL championship game. And so when the players came in to start training, they expected to immediately begin where they left off and start working on new and advanced ways to win their game and to win the championship for the new season. And when they sat down and their coach got up in front of them, Vince Lombardi held up a football and said, Gentlemen, this is a football. He then had everyone open up their playbooks and start on page one, where they begin learning the fundamentals of blocking, tackling, throwing, catching, and all of that. And it clearly was not what they expected of these players who were at the top of their game. But that hyper-focus on fundamentals allowed them to win the NFL championship that season, 37 to nothing against the New York Giants. And Lombardi would go on to win five NFL championships in seven years, and he never again coached a team with a losing season. Getting back to the fundamentals. So some applications and exposition here for personal growth is that one, we need to recognize God's presence and power in us to reach the world. Again, it is a great mystery that God would use us, humans, fallible, fumbling humans, to be his ambassadors for his kingdom and the great gospel message. And it's one of the most amazing revelations, this partnership to use us in his redemptive plan. It's one of the most amazing revelations ever to reach our ears. And our only response should be unquenchable gratitude toward a holy God that invites us to such a sacred mission. Luke wrote that his first account, his gospel, was all that Jesus began to do and teach. And the implication here in the book of Acts is that we will read about what Jesus continued to do and teach. The entire book of Acts describes how Jesus was building his church, and you see God's divine presence behind every action as he executes the redeeming work of mankind. It's very interesting to me what Jesus tells his followers here to do at this point. Did you catch it? He told them to wait. He told them to wait. To wait for the promise from the Father that he had told them about. In this new role that you have entrusted me with, I already feel the temptation that I must always be doing something, some new program, some new activity, some new venture to prove that we are trying to grow and build and be active. But sometimes Jesus wants us to wait. There isn't always the unction that we should be doing something. And I have to tell you, through reading through the book of Acts and praying about the direction to go, I sincerely feel that God is wanting us to go through a season of learning, learning his word, learning to love one another, learning to love the people of Rocky Top, learning to know and love the visitors to this church, learning to wait on the Lord. A verse that's often quoted is given to us by the prophet Isaiah. He writes that God gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases his strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, 
and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Now, it doesn't mean that we do nothing. It doesn't mean that we become lazy or sluggards, of course, but it is a hopeful anticipation of what God will do and what God promises to do. In the meantime, we're called to obedience in the simple, everyday things. I love reading Oswald Chambers' work entitled, My Utmost for His Highest. And he frequently writes of the human inclination to want to do what is big and spectacular and noticeable, even for God. And the will might be in the right place, but this is not what God calls us to do. Chambers writes, we have, the, have to be exceptional in the ordinary things, to be holy in mean streets, to be holy among mean people. And this is not learned in five minutes. We're not made for the mountains or sunrises, he says, or for other beautiful attractions in life. Those are simply intended to be moments of inspiration. We are made for the valley and for the ordinary things of life. And that is where we have to prove our stamina and strength. So God told his disciples to wait for the Holy Spirit to come, and they would have the power to do what needed to be done. Secondly, we need to rely on his promises. So what was this power that Jesus promised? Well, Jesus had told them that when he departed, the Holy Spirit would come and be with them. I love to look at some of the Greek words that were used by the biblical writers and then try to guess or determine what modern vocabulary we derive from these Greek words. And so the word used for power here, and about ten other times just in the book of Acts, is the Greek word dynamis, dynamis. Now, it means power, it means strength, it means might. But can you guess a modern word that it would do? Well, there, there are several but one is dynamite, dynamite, an explosive power. There's an explosive power to the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. There's a legend of a fisherman who would go far out into the lake to fish by himself, and he always came back with nets full of fish, far more than even the most gifted fisherman was able to catch. And one day a man approached him and said, please teach me your secret. Teach me how to fish. So the fishermen agreed, and they both sat out in the boat, and they went out a great distance on the water. Then the fisherman reached under his chair, pulled out a stick of dynamite, lit it, and threw it in the water. It exploded, and all sorts of dead fish floated up to the water, and the fisherman began loading them in his nets. The other man looked at him and said, Surprise! I'm the game warden. Now we know what you're doing, and what you're doing is illegal. We've caught you. So the fisherman pulled out another stick of dynamite, lit the fuse, and handed it to the game warden. And then he said, are you going to sit there, or are you going to start fishing? What we have is power. If we truly love God, we can't hold on to it. We have to put it out there as a natural expression of who we are, because Christ lives in us. God works in us and through us. We must stop doing things for Jesus and let Jesus do things through us. Wherever we go, whatever we do, it must not be us living our life, but Christ living in us. It isn't our life anymore. 
Now, I'm not playing games with words. There's a truth here that emerges from Scripture. Paul says in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There are three major miracles in the life of a Christian. The first miracle is the life of the new birth. It's that of the new birth when we are born again by the supernatural mercy and grace and power and workings of God as we respond to his call to accept the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Then there's the final miracle. Either when we are resurrected at the end of all things or Jesus returns and we're immediately changed in the twinkling of an eye. But in the meantime, there is the supernatural work that God works in our life now to be more and more like him, to strive to be like him, to be sanctified. This is a promise of scripture and it's a reality of the Christian faith. Christ is in us when we are saved. When we surrender our will to him, he works through us. There's no magic things to say to make this happen, but it's a daily seeding and relinquishing of our will to God. And then finally, we must respond to his commission to us. He asked the disciples to wait until they received the power of the Holy Spirit, which they did on the day of Pentecost. And that will be another message we'll have soon. He told them, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And that right there becomes an outline for the entire book of Acts, and it's a model for us to follow. Here for the disciples, ground zero would be Jerusalem. Then it would expand to all Judea, then to Samaria, and then to the end of the earth. Like a stone dropped into a pond, the ripples would move ever farther outward. He said to be a witness, and we are to be witnesses as well. Not merely to argue like lawyers, not to be lawyers or debaters about the Bible, but to share what we have witnessed Christ do in our own lives. And we are to make disciples. You know, sometimes I'll hear of large Christian gatherings and the news will be reported that there were this many hundreds or this many thousands of decisions for Christ. Now, I'm not totally discounting that, but I do get a little concerned because Jesus told us to make disciples, not decisions. And then as the church, we are to help them grow and to mature. Now, we'll cover this more in the future, Lord willing, but we have to ask ourselves the question, are we a disciple? Are we growing? Are we maturing? Are you growing? Are you maturing? Am I growing? Am I maturing? These are all questions that we need to seriously ask ourselves. But our Jerusalem is Rocky Top, Tennessee. God clearly wants us here. So we must ask, how are we ministering to our local people? This Wednesday, we're opening our doors up to focus on reaching kids and youth. Now, we may not have any the first time, but would you join me in praying and in serving that we will be able to reach these folks to make disciples? And as we move forward, I hope every single heart in here burns with the desire to serve Jesus through this local group of believers, this church. We won't all do the same things. God doesn't want us to. But we do all have a divine command to reach people for his kingdom. You know, the last statement from the scripture we just read is this. While they were gazing into heaven, 
as Jesus went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go. I love the way the King James Version translates this. The angels say, Why stand ye gazing up into heaven? In other words, it was a gentle reminder to not just stand and stare, but to know we can move forward with a promise while always looking toward heaven. Philip Yancey shares this story, uh, excuse me, this story in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace. He writes, at the height of the Cold War, Billy Graham had visited Russia to meet with their political and religious leaders. And there were many conservatives in the U.S. for criticizing him for not taking a more prophetic role as Russia was often at the center of kind of these apocalyptic controversies. One accused him, in fact, of setting the church back 50 years. And Billy Graham, in his own inimitable way, responded, I am deeply ashamed, he said. I've been, very, I've been trying very hard to set the church back 2,000 years. As we go through the book of Acts, it's my goal and it's my prayer that we see how God worked in the early church 2,000 years ago and how God still promises to work through, through us as we recognize his presence, we rely on his promise, and we respond to his commission. And may I say that if there is ever a person here who wants to respond to know Jesus, we would love to talk with you about what the Bible teaches and lead you to respond. Or if you would like to join this fellowship of believers here at First Baptist, you are welcome to do that. And as we sing, we would invite you to come forward and make that known. But if you would now join me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, God, thank you for not just allowing us to wander in the darkness without knowing what to do, but to giving us your magnificent word, to give us this beautiful record in the book of Acts of how the early church acted, but most importantly, how you acted through the early church. You were building the church, active in every single moment. And God, we know that all of us, myself included, sometimes need a push, a kick in the pants to get forward. And to do what you would have us to do, God, to see clearly your vision for the church. And God, I pray that you will call us to do that and inspire in our hearts what you would have us to do. Even if it's waiting, just being simply obedient, showing up, listening and learning and praying in thoughtful obedience to you, to follow you to whatever you would have us to do. Thank you for this time together and the worship you have given us for you and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.